Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away this week, but I am joined by Emily Witt. Emily Witt is the author of Future Sex, A New Kind of Free Love. She's written for The New Yorker, N Plus One, The New York Times, and The London Review of Books, and studied all over the place at Brown University, Columbia University, the University of Cambridge, and she was also a Fulbright Scholar in Mozambique, of which I'm terribly jealous. But thank you for inviting me up to your hotel room to talk. Yeah, I'm happy that you're here. Since most people probably listening haven't read your book yet, can you give sort of an outline, just a general idea of what it is about? Sure. Um, With the book I set out, basically I'd observed that there had been a demographic shift of people getting married later, not at all a technological shift with lots of new ways of meeting people, uh, new possibilities for finding different sexual communities, and also a kind of moral or social shift where as a society there was kind of more tolerance and interest in a wider range of sexual interests and identities. And that big structural shift coincided in my own life with turning 30, reaching the age at which I thought I might be married or at least have that on the horizon. And it didn't seem to be on the horizon. And here were all these possibilities that I had never considered before. And the kind of story I was telling myself about my life felt obsolete. So what I did is I kind of began the book as a reported study of recent sexual history, kind of roughly from 1990. And so I looked at internet dating, internet pornography, a new tantric movement organization called One Taste that does something called orgasmic meditation. I reported on live webcams, on um, polyamory, new possibilities in reproduction and birth control, all of that, just reporting and observing, but then also seeing what these possibilities meant for my own life. What about sex, though? Was it always a particular interest of yours? What drew you to that topic? Well, I mean, no, it wasn't, you know, it was funny when I got, when I first started discussing the book with my literary agent, we sat down and we could both think of other writers that were so much more out there and so much more comfortable with their sexuality and more adventurous than me. But I kind of wonder, you know, I thought that maybe my insecurity or uncertainty actually could be helpful to many readers because some of them might be feeling the same trepidation. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think in reading the book, you come off as being at least bold, boldly curious. Even if you are scared internally, you really put yourself out there. Yeah, it's kind of a strange part of my personality that I I really seek out novelty. It's kind of the driving motivation for my work, certainly, but also just I've always wanted to go new places and meet new people and observe things. But then I have this other side of me that's very risk averse and and worries a lot about what other people are going to think of me. And so it's kind of a funny balance that, yeah, some people read the book and they think I'm I'm boring or they're like, what would it do to make this person happy? (laughs) But then on the other hand, yeah, I do really like being in situations where I don't know anybody and I'm meeting people 
very different for me. I would say I would not read boring okay. into this book. <laughs> Who has said this? Who are these people? Well, I think because, you know, when I was writing the book, I start. I really started out as a third person book and then I was encouraged by my editor, but also it became clear that the subjective experience of sexuality is much more specific and true and interesting than a kind of general take on it. So I put myself in, but it's not a memoir. It is memoiristic, but I don't say everything that happened to me during that time. And, and it was actually pretty hard for me to write about myself. It, it kind of came through in later drafts. It was a slow process of also publishing parts as I went along and realizing I wasn't going to be punished by some magazines I wanted to write for, or by my parents, things like that. So then I felt more comfortable. I mean, I can totally relate to this. And I something I wanted to ask you about is, from my point of view, hosting a podcast and coming from an NPR background, a lot of my learning curve has been how to start to share the personal stuff. And I think anybody who's listened to this podcast from beginning to now knows that I've gotten more and more personal over the, over the arc as I start to let a lot of that stuff fall away. And even the training that says you will never talk about what you actually believe. But there is still that worry of... I know my mom listens to it. Your parents were going to read this book. So how did that voice affect you? Like that little voice in your head that's your parents in writing about your own sexual experiences. And how did you get on and past to that? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, on the one hand, we live in this very sexualized society and there's boobs on HBO or whatever. So we're all free. But on the other hand, there were instances when I was working on the book, a couple cases where I tried to publish things before the book came out and they were maybe accepted by a magazine but then killed because of the content there were some parts that I published that my parents were kind of yeah my parents were pretty unhappy about it wasn't just like a repressive hypothesis I had evidence that if I shared too much there was the fear of some consequences that was outweighed by the benefits of sharing which again just made the writing so much more true to the reader and I published a little thing on internet dating pretty early and on Burning Man and on going to the porn company kink.com. And as I kind of was really pretty open about, I don't know, having an STI scare, having, you know, yeah, my own awkwardness or whatever it was, I could have been more open even, but I just realized that was what people connected to. And the fear that I had of being boring and oversharing and it kind of went away once I got a positive response and in the future for my writing I I think I'm gonna every time that that fear comes up as I'm writing that I'm sharing too much I mean there is oversharing you don't need to say everything but there's also the more specific and honest you can be about your experiences the more the reader will recognize it and feel it now that I keep that in mind I see it in the writing that I love all the time too so yeah has there been any shift that you can notice about how people when you they encounter you do they encounter you differently say if they've read your book than they would have in the past they're much more likely to tell me stories about their sexuality or about their dating life or their relationships. I mean, friends that I have friends that are really open now about sharing their kinks with me and their practices on internet dating sites. You know, that's an honor for me that people feel like they can share this stuff. It's great because you realize that even 
in your group of friends that you might think is kind of culturally uniform or something, then you find out all of this stuff. Once you open up a little bit of yourself, they open up to you. And the other thing is this process of inquiry that I did, it just made me much more confident to examine the mythologies around my sexuality and what I thought was sexy or beautiful. I definitely, in in past relationships, I would get kind of scared if a boyfriend, or not scared, I wanted to be cool and down, but it did always upset me if if my boyfriend looked at porn. And then me spending all this time watching porn, spending time with pornographers, figuring out what I liked, practicing naming my desires and practicing specific sexual fantasy, which I just hadn't done before. It just made me so much less scared of the world. And also, I just feel more centered and like I have more agency. So that really changed. Well, what was the moment when you pushed your parents or a magazine too far? One magazine um, bought my Burning Man article. I wrote, I went to Burning Man and I didn't think I would, it was worth writing about. I didn't think there was anything new to say. But then I went and it was 2013 and... I don't think that the kind of connection at that point had been made very clearly, at least not on the East Coast, between this new corporate culture on the West Coast centered in San Francisco, but also here in Seattle, and psychedelic drugs and sexual experimentation, that there had been this kind of convergence of tech culture and the legacy of the counterculture happened to be kind of concentrated in this one place. So I didn't plan to write on it, and then I got there, and I just really felt like I wanted to write about that. Now that's kind of common sense to everybody, I think. But And I wrote it. I sent it to a magazine, which I won't name. They bought it, and then two days later they killed it because their advertisers objected to, I guess, the sex and the drugs, which really surprised me. And then I couldn't sell it anywhere, and finally it was published in the London Review of Books. And same, so the kink.com article was also for a a magazine that I won't name, and they knew I was going in to write an article about BDSM pornography. And when I turned in the draft, they started kind of, it was kind of successive, oh, can you say a little bit more about the subculture and explain all the rules? And then it was kind of objections towards like fisting and... I could see the writing on the wall. It just got the emails got more and more nervous, and then they killed it. And that found a home in another kind of small literary magazine on Plus One. Well, I do want to talk about that that porn shoot that you went to. First, can you describe what the scenario was, and then I want to ask you about it. Yeah, sure. It's a it's a series on Kink.com called Public Disgrace, where the fantasy is the humiliation and punishment of a woman in a public place which for many of us is many women and many probably many humans is kind of a horrible it's not how we want the world to look but I was interested in attending the audience is participatory so you go to this bar and you're instructed to sort of insult and even grope the porn performer as she goes about having sex with another performer and then I was interested in it because here's this kind of really this fantasy that looks like misogyny and looks like um, frankly sexual assault and yet it was being directed by a woman and the performer was also very conscious and when she started doing porn it was 
the thing she most wanted to do. And so that was so interesting to me. And so I kind of like suspended my own criticisms of it and went to the shoot, went to hear what they had to say. And there were some things there that disturbed me, but there was also this sense that I understood what, what the performers were saying, that your whole life as a woman, you're told to be scared, you're told to worry about violence and worry about all this stuff. And to be in a space where you're, all of that stuff is happening to you, but you're in control, you can stop it, you can start it. Somebody's keeping an eye out for you. And it's like this very intense, transgressive experience. I understood why it could be empowering from the perspective of the fact that there were people in the world that got off to this. I worried about that, but in some ways, you know, I realized that the fantasy is equal to the taboo. And the fact that this, all the rules that are being broken in this porn were rules articulated by feminism and by a societal pursuit of equality. That was interesting to me. Some people, I think, will probably find that too forgiving of it. But that was kind of where I landed. I was going to ask if people ask you all the time about if you think porn like that is normalizing. Because that's the argument, that porn like that is normalizing of violence toward women. You know, I don't think so. You know, I I think, I mean, it's such a complicated time right now. When you look at the reaction to Donald Trump's bragging about basically doing just this sexually assaulting women (laughs) in public I don't mean to laugh and he just got elected president but on the other hand again the terms the outcry against that was sustained it was real you know I wish it had been enough to stigmatize him but I don't know I, I I don't think it's normalizing it I don't I think the forces that are normalizing it are much more pernicious than a sexual fantasy on a website sort of diverting but even being there when I was reading that particular part as a person who's equally curious and often throws myself at the world I was wondering what that would have been like like how was it for you to stand in the room well it's funny the experience I've had with because I watched a range of porn shoots and also just ended up seeing people having sex a lot and it's surprisingly normal if you're an adult it doesn't feel that weird and you kind of realize that all the art you've ever seen is kind of this just deferred a little bit and but then you know it's funny because only men would ask me but a few people would ask me you know well were you turned on during it you know the fact was like I I think when you're human and you see people having sex even if it's objectionable to you you have a lot of feelings in your body and it was interesting to me to have to acknowledge that what that meant that's kind of what is so scary about a lot of pornography is that that's the power of it is that it produces feelings that no matter your politics or your intentions or the what you want the world to like look like it activates you in some way. It took me a long time to admit that. I never would have admitted that for at least two years after seeing that shoot. I would have said, pretended like that wasn't true. Mm-hmm. That Oh, no, I was just a passive observer. Yeah, journalist. <laughs> I had my notebook. Uh, you know, would I go home and masturbate to that? No. Maybe it's not totally similar, but I saw a live surgery once, and it's not 
that I wasn't standing there with interest and I was recording it with a microphone. So I had a job to do while I was there. But there were still those moments when they were, it was an open uh, knee replacement surgery. And there were those moments when they were moving the knee to try to make sure it was working right, but it was all ripped open. That you do have like that, I'm using this as an example. Sorry, I'm making your stomach turn. But you do have that like body physical like revulsion where you have to look at the ceiling for a minute and think, I'm not going to throw up. Yeah, you know, it's that same thing. I would have fainted in that. I would have fainted. <laughs> yeah. So, so sex is okay, but surgery not so much. I mean, yeah, that's the thing is sex is always, I don't know. It's, it, and because I knew, because I knew the director, Princess Donna Delore, and the actor, Penny pa- Pax, and the, um, the other performer, Ramon Nomar, I knew that they were there with clear minds and positive intentions that they were taking care of each other there were some people in the room that scared me a little bit and the enthusiasm with which they wanted to insult the performer there were some things that just made me really feel upset but I think knowing that the performers were in charge they were in control you know, in my mind, I kept kind of comparing it to extreme marathon runners or something. They were doing something that to most people, why would you do that? You know, why would you put yourself through that? There's no reason we live in a comfortable society. There's enough pain in the world to fend off. Why would you put yourself through it? But for them, it's it's a feat of endurance, of pleasure, of of pushing, of transgression, of you know, kind of what we were talking about before of just, so I have my own things where I like to seek experiences. I just don't go that far, but some people do. Yeah. How did the people who were in the room get in the room? They put out a call on their website and you just have to be over 18. I think you sign up in advance. They take a photo. You have to consent to being on camera. They take a photo of you with your ID. So they have proof that you're over 21, I think, or maybe 18. You get some drink tickets because it's at a bar. Switching gears, do you think that there's anything weird about the fact that we have commodified sex so much that like young people could just decide, you and I are a couple, we want to have sex tonight, why not try to make money off of it at the same time? I don't know. Sex, you know, sex workers or sex workers' rights advocates will say, those relationships of exchange are coded into marriage, are coded into having your date pay for your dinner. They're coded throughout society. So they just, you know, are manifesting in new ways of new technology, but in their very old relationships of exchange. Ideally, we would live in a world where it would all be free, but it's just not that way. What's the name of the website you talk about? That's the live webcam site. It's called chatterbait.com and it's spelled like masturbate, not like chatter. So it's not, it's, it was kind of an arbitrary choice of a live webcam site. The, you know, I don't think it, it's definitely not the biggest one. What interested me, it was actually an assignment from an editor and what interested both of us is that it was free. So something like a much bigger site is there's one called live jasmine there's a lot more rules about when a performer can take off her clothes and you have to kind of pay or sign in to get access to certain things whereas this you can just turn on your computer and start broadcasting and people can watch you that's what i'm kind of getting at what do you make of that i guess i kind of 
Throughout the book, I just erred towards optimism. The negative side of this is really easy for anybody to talk about, and there's so much written about it, that I, I was just kind of, okay, what's the possibility for happiness here, or for fulfillment? And I was really surprised when I went into it. I thought it was just this classic dynamic of peep show, voyeur dynamic. There was nothing new there. And then as I interviewed people... I began speaking to women and men who found in this forum either a safe space in which to express themselves because they could control who was watching to a certain extent, or rather who was not watching. They could kick people out. And they found in it a forum of, yeah, a way to experiment in mass and speak really openly about sex in this kind of... I don't know, one one person I interviewed called it mass intimacy. For a lot of these people, they were, for whatever reason, at home by themselves at a time where they were caring for a sick relative or they were living in a small town and they were lonely and this gave them a sense of connection and empowerment. Maybe they were culturally out of place where they were and they could go online and find this community. Or even one young woman just defined herself as internet sexual and she said, this is the way that she wants to have sex through a medium and not in person. There's a lot of, sometimes you're clicking through and there's a lot of just people sitting at their computer kind of waiting for somebody to tip them until they do something. But, you know, I also, I met, um, I, or I didn't meet her, I spoke on the phone with a, a middle-aged woman in Iowa. She's in her 40s living in a small town. And she, you know, she would go on, and go look at the mail page and find people that wanted to do cam-to-cam direct interaction. And to me, that's so cool. I don't know. There's something really futuristic and cool. What I realized during this is, like, I had thought about going on there, and I just, I'm really bad at performing sexuality, even in my relationships. It's just, I always feel weird about it. So, but if that were your thing, you'd have this, you would never have to be alone. And I think that would be kind of comforting is to know that, okay, you could be like completely alone in life and then you could still go find somebody that wants to connect with you. It might not be the person you want. It might be kind of weird, but there are these things out there. Why did you decide to call the book Future Sex? I kind of named it in honor of this erotic magazine in San Francisco in the 90s that was called Future Sex. And they had lots of articles about teledildonics and cyber (laughs) I don't know it was really 90s and I I guess I wanted to recapture some of that utopianism from the beginning of the internet because I felt like it had been lost especially around sexuality there's just a lot of pessimism about what the technology had brought yeah future sex because it was my own future I was contemplating also the sci-fi books always predicted this time and they predicted this time as having new sexual paradigms and they were right and I probably shouldn't read my reviews and stuff but some people feel like the book isn't very futuristic but I I would argue that and I've been arguing is that there's just this kind of machine bias in futurism where people think that the futuristic is like virtual reality and sex robots but it actually is all of the stuff that's happening now, the new ways in which we're meeting people and new ways in which we're forming sexual communities and expanding the idea of what commitment is and what a relationship looks like, what a family looks like, all the new ways of having a baby. That to me is 
super futuristic. Um, so that's what I was yeah. trying to capture. Are you different having written this book? I mean, besides the grand accomplishment of actually having a book out? It changed everything. I'm. It's hard to explain it. It feels contrived almost to have it be so narratively pat like this, but I feel really, really different having written it. And I didn't want to write a self-help book. It wasn't my intention, and I didn't think that it would. I always thought, okay, I'll go meet a bunch of people doing a bunch of things, but I know who I am. My expectations are pretty conventional and mainstream, blah, blah, blah. It was wrong. I think anybody that I would recommend anybody go outside your comfort zone and and make an inquiry of some kind sometimes that's just forced on you by life because you get divorced or you get um dumped and you find yourself with a set of possibilities around you that aren't the ones you wanted but that's what you have so you just go and and yeah as I said before I just watching all the pornography even the orgasmic meditation stuff liberating myself from this idea of the man as a sexual as a narrative agent of a relationship kind of liberating myself from the desire for marriage in the way that I I don't know how that happened but it just did at a certain point I just feel less scared less you know I used to have this idea that as you age and you become less beautiful or less desirable I I just I don't know the evidence that I saw <laughs> out in the world indicated that somebody was always going to want to have sex with me and I was going to be fine and yeah that was all really comforting and empowering mm-hmm. yeah so before maybe when you started out the book you were worried that here you were hitting your 30s and what you weren't going to be married in time before you start to fade away like a flower right yeah yeah and it was just I wanted that metric of success, I think, because I'm a rule-abiding person and I've always gotten good grades. That was the next thing for me. And, yeah, I just assumed that that was what happiness looked like or what kind of adulthood looked like. And I don't know. That could still happen. Who knows? It's not that I've, like, rejected that or I think everybody should live in a certain way. Definitely not. But it's more like... What I was trying to do with the book is just look at my life on the terms in which it was existing. Okay, if what's available to me is casual relationships or sexual relationships in which love is not really, you know, there's maybe kind of friend love, but not like spend the rest of your life together love. Um, How do you find intimacy and stability and honesty and authenticity, all the things that we associate with them? with true love or something how do you find it in these other kinds of relationships and how do you learn to value those experiences and projecting in the future how could you form a family with those kind of relationships how could you take care of yourself each other when you're old and obviously there's communities that have a long history of answers to those questions but for me as a straight white woman there isn't a lot of history <laughs> to that, yeah. maybe. Do you think you're more exposed to uh, heartbreak, having those kind of relationships? Yeah, you're. I mean, anybody who's internet dated can tell you you're just facing constant rejection, and that's another thing is what, how to take that rejection. I mean, it, it's all it is. It's less stable. You're more vulnerable, inexplicable 
things happen like people stop texting you or disappear for no reason and you have to try to parse what happened in your own mind you know and I hope that as these technologies age the etiquette and manners around them will become more established and something like ghosting will just be seen as like a really mean thing to do (laughs) an unnecessary mean thing but on the other hand I think yeah you do face more rejection when you're single it's hard to be single but there's also you get to try more things you get to meet people that you would never meet you get you know everybody knows what's good about being single too which is just that you're really open to the world you can change more somehow you it's hard but it's worth it and to the extent that many people who are in relationships now don't want to shut down that part of their life because they're in love with somebody has it changed how you view I'm going to put typical in air quotes typical married couple the couple who met each other married have been together 25 years 50 years something like that has it changed how you see those people well I still respect those people and and their choices but I also think I don't want to say they made the easy path because being married is really hard but and anybody that has a alternatives isn't the right word but sexuality that doesn't fit into the family sitcom so easily or something (laughs) um will know this already but you know if if you're married the world is constantly affirming the rightness of what you're doing and if it's hard it's supposed to be hard and you can like go to a priest and have your vows renewed and there's all this support for it being difficult and persevering through it and all you know these consumer models around it and stuff whereas you know if you're polyamorous it's emotionally something happens and you're emotionally devastated everybody's like well what did you expect you made a difficult choice but I think you know what I realized is that it's all gonna be hard and and it's worth trying new things like the idea that alternatives to marriage don't work or communalism doesn't work yeah it won't work sometimes but marriage doesn't work either so it's kind of yeah lucky you if your life fits into this thing that everybody respects since this is a podcast that a lot of expats or former expats listen to and a lot of what you learn by living in another country is oftentimes that life doesn't have to follow a script like you sort of change it even your expectation of getting a job getting married do, do this instead you might just say screw it I'm moving to Rome like I did for a year how would you say that living in other countries affected you do you think it changed your personality and I don't know if it relates to the book that you worked on or not but what would you say yeah it deeply shaped my perspective as a writer I went abroad for the first time in high school as an exchange student for a year in Chile and then I lived in Brazil for seven months I lived in Mozambique for a year and I spent a lot of last year in Berlin, which was less of a experience of cultural estrangement maybe than the other places. But yeah, and then I've traveled a lot for work. And what you learn, anybody, this is basic, is that you go away and you kind of realize what is real. You realize what is culture. You realize what culture is and which of your beliefs are really culturally come from where you grew up and the family, the religion or the city that you were raised in and its values and 
Yeah, I mean, it was funny, especially with this book. I actually, I went to Nigeria last year at this time, November 2015 and December 2015. And Nigeria is a country where everybody is married, all adults and people in their 20s, young people. They're all married and they have kids. And I just could feel people's pity constantly. And it was a good reminder because I'm not married. Um. It was just a good reminder of culture and kind of how powerful these narratives are. If you live in a place where everybody's married and that's the thing that you're supposed to have done, you really feel bad if you're not. You feel like you screwed up in some way or something. And so it was kind of like a nice reminder. And that's true here too, you know, but it's a reminder that these are stories and it's worth looking at the stories and examining them and trying to figure out if we really want them or not. Well, Emily Witt, the book is called Future Sex, A New Kind of Free Love. Thanks so much for talking to me. Thank you. It's great. This is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Thanks for all the ways you support us. Give us a good rating on iTunes, maybe five stars if you like the show. It will help other people discover that we exist. Thank you. You're the best.